you have your Bibles, can you turn with me to John 21? I'm not sure how long we've been in John's Gospel, but we've come into the last chapter. John chapter 21, we'll read the first 14 verses. Let's pray as we read, before we read God's Word. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the privilege of having your word in our language that we can understand. Heavenly Father, I thank you that every word comes through your hand. I thank you for your precious words. I thank you that it tells us about Jesus. Holy Spirit, give me the words to speak well of the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So John 21, verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing, just as day was breaking. Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? They answered him, no. He said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, It is the Lord. When Simon Peter heard that it was, was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. When they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place, with fish laid out in it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard, went aboard and hauled the net ashore, ashore, full of large fishes, large, large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. May the Lord bless the reading of his holy and inerrant word. Well, this is first of all about the resurrection. It's about the resurrection. Because we read in verse 1, after this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. So this is another post-resurrection occasion, appearing of our Lord Jesus. Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. It's another post-resurrection appearance of Christ. That's how the story begins, and that's how it ends in verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. Not counting his appearance to Mary Magdalene 
on Resurrection Sunday morning because she is not among the eleven disciples, but first appear to them on the Sunday evening, and then a week later when Thomas was with them. So this is the third time that Jesus has appeared to his disciples. And we have several hints telling us that this is an eyewitness account of a historical event. This is not some fairy tale. This is set in a real geographical region by the Sea of Tiberias, which is another name for the Sea of Galilee, where much of the Gospels take place. There are seven disciples, some of them by name, a couple not given, but seven of the disciples. There's the disciple who Jesus loved, that's John, one of the sons of Zebedee, the author of the book. And when Peter throws himself into the sea and swims ashore to find Jesus, do you notice the action doesn't follow Peter at that point? Which is just another indication that this is eyewitness testimony. We're not dealing with someone making up a story like you would have in a novel or a fiction book, which is written always from the perspective of an omniscient narrator. But John wasn't swimming with Peter, so the action picked up when they reached the shore again. Then you have the number of fish, and I'll come back to the 153 at the end. I know that's what you came for. And see if there's more to the number than that meets the eye. But at least, most significantly, most importantly, it is a lot of fish. Now this is not the normal practice, you see, when you're a fisherman by trade. When it is your livelihood, you wouldn't count every fish. So surely this was a special occasion where they had this miraculous catch. You could just imagine them saying, look at all of these large fish. The net didn't break. We must count them. We must record it. We must write it down. How many fish were there? So they got 153. So it's an eyewitness account. It's a historical event. Last Lord's Day, we looked at Doubting Thomas. The book of Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt. In occasions of doubt, come back to the resurrection. Some may ask, some may say, well, is the Bible true? Is the Bible inspired? What if I'm in a, the wrong religion? What if this is just a fairy tale? Well, all we start with is the resurrection true. Now, there are other ways to get it, of course, but this is one salutary way. This is a historical event with all the earmarking of a historical eyewitness account. You say, well, how do I know? How can I really trust anything? Well, how do you know anything about the pharaohs? How do you know about Alexander the Great? How do we know anything about Julius Caesar? How do we know anything about Henry VIII? Well, somebody was there. Somebody was there with an eyewitness account and wrote it down. It was preserved. That is how you know. And so it is with Jesus. It wouldn't have made sense for the disciples to lie about the resurrection, to lie about these appearances. You see how obvious John is making it. This is the third time he appeared to the disciples. Paul says famously in 1 Corinthians 15, he appeared to more than 500 people at one time. 
There are people alive who've seen the resurrected Jesus. Go and ask them. This wasn't done in a corner. This isn't one person in a cave with a spiritual experience and you need to trust him. Hundreds of people, sometimes multiple times, saw the Lord Jesus after he rose from the dead. This wasn't done in a corner. Go ask. This wasn't a group hallucination. This was history. Tradition tells us that all the disciples but John lost their lives for faith in Christ. You don't die for a lie. You do not die for a lie. We trust the resurrection. And here we have another incident where Jesus appeared to them. <coughs> because, my friend, the tomb is not empty. The tomb is empty. The tomb was empty. There can be all sorts of explanations for an empty tomb. I, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. You can have an empty tomb. And then we had appearances. You've got both of these things. But if the tomb is not empty and you see Jesus, well, who's in the tomb? Who really died? Or if the tomb is empty and no appearances, well, somebody stole his body. But the tomb is empty and Jesus appeared. Both are true. Empty tomb, Jesus appeared. And this is the third time post-resurrection to the disciples. So on the most basic level, John 21, 1 to 14, we're meant to see that this is a resurrection account. This is the third time that the Lord Jesus revealed himself to the disciples as the resurrected Lord. Secondly, the story is about Jesus, which should be really obvious, but he appears out of nowhere. Verse 4, as Jesus, the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. It's the same word there for standing, by the way, that's used three times in chapter 20 when they saw him standing in the midst of the room. But rather than spend too much time speculating how Jesus got there, what's really important is what he has to say. They don't know it's Jesus initially. Sometimes in the Gospels, like in Mary in chapter 20, in the garden, or the disciples on the road to Emmaus, Luke 24, sometimes it kind of, there seems to be like a veil of ignorance. This doesn't seem to be the case here. But just when you're a hundred yards away, at the break of the day, you're not sure who it is who's speaking to you. And Jesus speaks to them from the shore, so he's far enough away, so they can't really make out who it is. But it's close enough so that they can hear him. So Jesus called out to them, children, do you have any fish? I wonder what the disciples were feeling at this moment. Were they hopeful? If they didn't know who it was, do you think they were rolling their eyes in the boat? Oh my goodness, do you know what I mean? But they answered him, no. And then he said, well, cast your net on the right side of the boat, you'll find some. They cast the nets, whether, at, whether out of hope, despair or cynicism, and the catch is unbelievable. 
Now this isn't a sign as we understand it in the signs of John's Gospel. We saw in John 20, 30, Jesus did many other signs which are not written in this book. And seven or eight of those signs, depending how you count the resurrection as one of, the, or one of them or not, are in John's Gospel. And those signs is kind of like a technical term because they were used to prove the identity of who Jesus is. So this is after that. So it may not be a sign in that way, the technical sense, but it is another miracle. It could be a miracle of omnipotence, that Jesus as the Son of God makes 153 fish appear, or it could be a miracle that they've gone all night and Jesus as the Son of God knows that right at that, that, that moment at the right hand of the boat there are a lot of fish. Whichever one it is, it demonstrates to the disciples quickly, this is no ordinary man. This is no ordinary man standing on the beach, having an early morning breakfast on the beach. John says, it is the Lord. He puts two and two together. This miraculous catch of fish, it is him. And amazingly, just notice the ordinary language that is used. They find in verse 9 a charcoal fire in place, fish laid out on it and bread. Jesus, the Lord Jesus is there to make the disciples breakfast. Interestingly, there are two different words for fish here in the Greek. Obsarian in verse 9, 10 and 13, which is fish as food, and ictus which is the word you may be more familiar with, the Greek word for fish as a living animal in 6, 8 and 11. And it's possibly like we distinguish, I thought about it this week, between cow and beef. You don't normally say that you're going to go and pet the beef or we're having roast cow and Galilean pudding for dinner. No, cow when it is living and beef when you eat it. So it's a similar kind of thing. There are two different words for fish used here. But what is an amazing thing is such an ordinary, earthly human scene. And that is what makes it absolutely remarkable. If it wasn't in the Bible, you wouldn't think it would be in the Bible. It's so ordinary. And that's what makes it so wonderful. Jesus says, come and have breakfast. Why is it so remarkable? Well, you have the Son of God. Everything we've been building to in John's Gospel, we saw explode in the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Monologies, the only begotten from the Father. All of these signs, and now he's the resurrected one. Thomas confessed him, my Lord and my God. And the same Jesus says, come and have breakfast. It's a reminder to us that Jesus is always the king who serves. Even as the resurrected Lord, he came not to be served, but to serve. He is ever the host. He is ever for us. He is ever ready to come to our aid. He is ever ready to beckon and save. If you would but listen and come, I will provide a meal for you. I am the Lord. I want to feed you.
I love what we see about Lord, the Lord Jesus here. So this is a wonderful story about the resurrection. It's a wonderful story that tells us wonderful things about Jesus. Thirdly, the disciples. Well, it's hard to know what to make of the disciples. They are growing, they are changing, they're not everything that they are going to be. Fully endowed with the Holy Spirit. Some commentators have said, and I've, I've even heard, I was thinking about this, I've even heard sermons like this, that were the disciples sinning by fishing? Some people make a big deal of this and say that the disciples had left their discipleship. They had left following Jesus, O ye of little faith. They had gone back to their old way of life. Peter says, let us go fishing. And some people make a big deal of that, that he had reverted back to his old way of life. But I don't think that is the case. I really don't. I don't think we're meant to judge them for fishing. The text doesn't suggest anywhere that they've done anything wrong. It is their livelihood. It says later, doesn't it, Peter was stripped for work. That is what they have to do. There are seven of them here, likely seven who lived in the area. Peter was a fisherman. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were fishermen. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee and two others mentioned. His speculation, I've I notice that a speculation sake. Probably Andrew, who's often with Peter. Probably Philip, who earlier in, with, in John is with Nathaniel. So probably Andrew and Philip are the two that we don't know. And you have these seven Galilean men going out to do what, how, what, to do what they know how to do. They know how to fish. And Jesus told them to go to Galilee. Matthew 28, verse 7, and then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. And verse 10 of Matthew 28, and Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. It's hard to know the exact chronological account of the order of these appearances, or how close they are on the heels of one another. But there was instruction from the angel, from Jesus, at some point you're going to Galilee and you'll see me there. I don't think they, they, they did anything wrong in going to Galilee and going fishing. They haven't abandoned Jesus. They haven't been, clearly they're not filled with the Holy Spirit like they will be after Pentecost. They don't seem like the apostles that we meet in the book of Acts. So they probably are a bit discombobulated. I said it. Sort of lacking in clear purpose. So they're not the disciples either that you find before the resurrection, but they're not the disciples you see after Pentecost. They haven't been filled with the Spirit, so they're confused. But they are eager. In John and Peter figure prominently as they often do in John's Gospel. Peter always seems to be the first among equals, kind of a de facto leader. So Simon Peter says, I'm going fishing. He's probably one of the older ones as well, so they follow him, they go fishing. And then Peter being the bold one, the shoot first, ask questions later. 
I'm sure Peter's one of those guys who always asks, he always asks for forgiveness rather than asks for permission. He's that kind of guy, isn't he? And we see another example of it here, with all of his boldness and his impetuousness. Jesus is a hundred yards away, and Peter says, I'm going to put on clothes and swim to the shore because I have to cover myself up when I have breakfast with Jesus. They're eager, confused. There's a genuine, heartfelt enthusiasm for being with Jesus. But they have a very important lesson to learn. And I think this is Jesus' way of reinforcing the lesson of John 15, verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And that's a wonderful lesson for us this afternoon. Apart from me, Jesus would say, you can do nothing. We've just seen in chapter 20, Jesus is sending them out. But before they go, they need to learn this lesson firsthand, that Jesus is the vine, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Surely, one of the good things that the Lord is doing, and I mean this, one of the good things that the Lord is doing with COVID is to remind us how weak we are and how much our plans are in his hands. I would want it so different. I would want it much less confusing. There's so much that frustrates me. But surely one of the good things that the Lord is teaching us that our plans are really in his hands. We, know, we may know through the study of the Bible, I'm sure we do, that in the book of James, that we are to say with our plans, Lord willing, or if the Lord will. And I think sometimes it is the, the, the more older ones of us who would say that by, de by default, but I think we should say it. Lord willing, if the Lord will. You see, sometimes people put DV after their name, or on their calendar after their plans, Dio Volente, Latin, for if the Lord will. It's a humble place to be, it's a right place to be, if the Lord will. We know that as a theological concept, but we've been reminded of that over the last couple of years, haven't we? It is really true, if the Lord will. All the best plans that we could make are changed, or maybe gone. So the Lord is reminding us, I believe, in even what we are living through, how utterly dependent we are on him. Apart from him, apart from me, Jesus would say, you can do nothing. And how quickly we forget it. I hope it really isn't the case. And there's so many false dawns, but I hope it will not be long after this is over, that it is so likely that most people will again believe in themselves, will believe in the myth of self-sufficiency. Never make that mistake. That right now, when we know that we need God, we need God, we're praying for health, we're praying for safety. We know that we're in his hands, but maybe months, years, Life is normal and the tendency is to fall back into self-sufficiency. Never waste your suffering. And if we learn this one lesson and never forget it, apart from me, 
you can do nothing, then this, what we're going through, will not have been in vain. Keep casting your net in the waters. Who knows what God may provide? What miraculous catch of fish? Cast your net. Keep praying. Knock on doors. Tell people about Jesus. Jesus says, give it another try. Cast your net over to the other side. They thought all hope had gone. They thought there was no way that they were catching fish that day. Who knows when Jesus will give to you or us that miraculous catch. And we need to believe that he can and he will. So it's a story about the resurrection. It is a wonderful story about Jesus. It's a story about the disciples. And then there's another layer. It tells us about the mission of the church. The miraculous catch is a symbol of the miraculous ingathering of the children of God through the mission of the church. That's what this is about. I will make you fishers of men. Remember the context here, post-resurrection. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Jesus is saying, listen to me, do as I say, trust me, depend on me, do not give up. There is an ingathering that is coming. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the Lord will and can do that? The fish are a sign of the mir miraculous ingathering of people. Now you say, well, that sounds good. But do we really know that that's what's going on here? Do we really know that that's what's going on here? That this is the fish are the sign of the miraculous ingathering of the Lord's people? Well, there's a, there is a connection here to Ezekiel 47. And in Ezekiel 47, you have this picture. By the end of Ezekiel, you have this picture of this cosmic end-time temple. And it's a picture of God's kingdom to come, when his temple fills all in all. And from the temple is flowing streams of water. We see that at the beginning of Ezekiel 47, which is a connection with John's Gospel, chapter 7. When Jesus said, streams of living water will burst forth. It's an allusion to Ezekiel 47. The water was a symbol of life. A symbol of life for the crops and a symbol of life coming from the water of blessing. And Jesus says in John 7, come to me and drink. Whosoever believes in me will have rivers of living water coming out of him. Well, here there is a fulfilment of Ezekiel's vision of a supernatural haul of fish. If you want to turn there, Ezekiel 47, I'll just read three verses, 7 to 10. As I went back, I saw on the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into the Araba and enters the sea, where the water flows into the sea, the water will become fresh. And wherever the water goes, every living creature that swarms will live, and there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh, so that everything will live where the river goes. Fishermen will stand beside the sea, from En Gedi to En Englain, 
it will be a place for the spreading of nets. Its fish will be of very many kinds, like the fish of the great sea. So in Ezekiel, you have this prophetic word about the end time temple and the streams of living water and the teeming with creatures. And it'll be an occasion for the spreading of nets and a great haul of fish speaking to the vitality, the life, the abundance of the river coming from the temple. In the same way, Jesus is fulfilling it with this miraculous haul of fish, which is a foreshadowing of what will come when the Spirit arrives and the miraculous ingathering of the people from every tribe and nation. There's a scholarly article at the back of one of his books by Richard Borkham, one of the most well-respected New Testament scholars, and it's called The 153 Fish and the Unity of the Fourth Gospel. I can give you the link afterwards if you want it. And he goes down a lot of tangents, and I'm not convinced, I'm not, I'm, I'll be honest, I don't believe every biblical number story there is, I really don't. But I think he makes a really good case that we shouldn't ignore the importance of special numbers in the Bible, especially in John's writings, the Gospel of John and Revelation. There are loads of important numbers. There's 144,000, there's seven, there's four, there's 666, which is the number of the beast. The numbers meant something. 153 is the triangular number of 17. Now, Augustine pointed that out. You know what a triangular number is? That if you put all the... A triangular number, if you put... Um, the, the boys would do it better than me, but if you have the numbers in a triangle, there, and the triangular number for 153 is 17. People have noticed that for centuries. And Ezekiel 47 verse 10, I quite like this, with this great haul of fish, you have two place names. You have En Gedi, which is the spring of Gedi, and En Englaim, which is the spring of Eglaim. Hebrew letters are also numbers. The first nine letters being one to nine, the next nine being 10 to 90, the last five being 100 to 400, just, just Trust me on that. And coding words with numbers is called gematria. It's a, it's a, it's a, it is a thing, it really is. And if you take the N from Engedi and the N from En Eglame, because En means spring, the following emerges. Gedi in Hebrew is 17 and Eglame is 153. I'm not making that up, it's true. That surely is too close to be a coincidence. We have the 17 Gedi mentioned first, and then its relative number 153, Iglaim mentioned second, connecting to the evangelization of the Gentiles symbolized by fishing. And just as another thing Borkham throws in, that Gedi is the 153rd word in Ezekiel 47 in Hebrew. And the Hebrew phrase, just to add another one, children of God, has the value of 153. So there are lots of things you can do, and I really wouldn't say that you can, all of it is right or all of it is convincing. But when you see this connection to Ezekiel 47, this is the Old Testament prophecy. 17 and 153. And that number jumps out at you because 
People in the ancient world, numbers was important. And it's much too much of a happenstance that Gedi is 17, Iglaim is 153, and Ezekiel 47 verse 10 is about the great harvest of fish. So what? 153 represents the totality of the nations of the world that will be drawn in in the new creation. It reinforces the mission of the Son of God as he's given to the disciples and through the disciples to the church. Do you need to know anything about triangular numbers to make sense of this passage? No, but it's another gift of God. It's a gift of God in John 21. You don't have to be con convinced of every numerical connection. But it's so out of the ordinary to have 153 in Ezekiel 47 talking about the fish and then 153 in John 21, the fish that was the, the, the number of fish. John 21 is this inbreaking of the end time vision of the holy temple, streams of living water, health, strength, vitality, a miraculous catch of fish from the spring of Gedi and the spring of Englaim. And now it's happening with the disciples. Go put your net on the right side of the boat and see what you can get. It isn't mainly about fish. It is about what Jesus said at the beginning of the gospel story. I will make you fishers of men. So is John 21 a promise that your church will grow, this church will grow fantastically? It isn't that promise. Is it a promise that your evangelism will automatically bear fruit? No. But it's a promise that Jesus Christ will build the church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And we believe that. And it's testimony to the Lord's continuing power and presence with the disciples and now with us as we prepare for his mission and we live out the mission which he has given to us. He has promised a great haul of fish. Do we believe that? Do we believe the promises of God? So will you keep preaching? Will you keep praying? Will you keep serving? Will you keep serving faithfully where you are, near and far? It reminds us of this great truth. We need to hear that the church is in the midst of a battle. It will not lose. The church is in the midst of a battle. It will not lose. It's right to represent. It's right to pray. And thank the Lord, for example, that this last week, the, um, the, the, the timeline for the conversion therapy consultation has been moved back. I, I thank the Lord for that. So there are battles to fight, brothers and sisters, but the church is in the midst of a battle it will not lose. Because Jesus is building the church. And he said that the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we're engaged in a mission that will not fail. So let us keep casting our nets. Let us keep being faithful. Let us keep praying. Let us keep telling people about Jesus. Let us keep preaching. Because we're engaged in a mission that can never fail. He is alive. He is ascended. He ever lives to intercede. May the Lord bless the word for his glory and for our eternal good. Amen.